Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. With me on the phone is Jeffers Lennox, the new professor in the Department of History at Wesleyan University in Middleton, Connecticut, about midway between New Haven and Hartford, Connecticut, for those of you who may not be aware of where Middletown is located. He's the author of Homelands and Empires, Indigenous Spaces, Imperial Fictions, and Competition for Territory in Northeastern North America, 1690 to 1763. The book is published by the University of Toronto Press. Jeffers, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with you. This book is the product of your PhD thesis, is it? Yes. Yeah, that's right. I spent about four years living in Halifax doing a PhD at Dalhousie, which was just a fantastic experience. I'm from just outside of Toronto. I did my undergraduate at the U of T and then decided to give the Maritimes a try, which was a great decision. And I had a great time at Dalhousie working on this project. I then spent a couple of years at the University of British Columbia as a postdoc before getting to Wesley in 2012. Well, it's delightful to have you here. Let's start with the obvious. Your book is about vast homelands of the Mi'kmaq, the Abenaki, the Wolstukwiuk, and the Passamaquoddy. Who are these people? Well, these are the members of what is sort of informally known as the Wabanaki Confederacy. So these are the indigenous peoples of northeastern North America who have sort of lived on and through and been supported by their homelands. We imagine at least probably 10 or 12,000 years. And these are people with vast, diverse territories, shaped as much by water as by land. These are groups that had sort of bounded territories, understood their boundaries, and had worked out a way of living in, in kind of a shared territory. So we're talking about what we know today as Nova Scotia, New Brunswick? Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Northern Maine, and of course... P.I.? Is P.I. part of it? Yes, absolutely. P.I., Cape Breton, the Mi'kmaq make their way up the Gaspé as well. So it's a really big territory. So all the way to Gaspé? Yes. Okay, so we are talking about a vast territory, but not Newfoundland, right? Well, I did not focus on Newfoundland. Okay. But the traditional Mi'kmaq and Mi'kma'ki does extend a fair bit north, but it sort of bleeds into other territories as well. Now, you picked 1690 to 1763, a 73-year period. 1763, I can understand because it's really the end of the French regime in North America. 1690, can you explain to us why you picked 1690? Is there something in particular that happens that year? Well, I originally thought of the project sort of as, initially, as the rise and fall of Acadia. And 1690 for the English is sort of the nadir in the Northeast. Everything had gone poorly. And I wanted to frame it in a way that looked at the competition between sort of French and and English imperial forces in what was an indigenous homeland. And 1690 is one of the early conquests of Acadia. Right. Frontenac is, Frontenac, is it the conquest of Quebec, right? It's the first time Quebec's invaded? Well, they attempt, yeah. They right. attempt and they, they fail. They take, and this is sort of the English pattern, Port Royal, what is now Annapolis Royal, is sort of a stepping stone to Quebec. And so 1690 was a failure for the English. And I wanted to kind of start at a moment when things were up for grabs. And I thought that in the imperial sphere anyway, 1690 was a good start. And then by 1763, things are no longer up for grabs in terms of empires in North America, although the indigenous peoples are still very much in control of much of their homeland. 
Sure, sure. Now, you're a young historian. This is still an area that's been traveled time and again, that the story of the various rivalries between the English and the French, basically the exportation of European conflicts to North American land. How do you see your analysis of the contact between European settlers and the indigenous people who lived in what we call today the Maritimes differently? What makes your analysis different from what's been written in the past? Well, what I wanted to do is explore these interaction as sort of a constant process of negotiation that's shaped less by settlement and more by boundaries and territories. And what I do that I hope is a useful contribution is emphasizing the fact that this territory remained indigenous for most of the 18th century. And there was a real tension between what the empires, the administers in Versailles or in London, what they saw in the Northeast and what was actually happening in the Northeast. And the real tension is that local officials realized that there was no imperial sovereignty. There were barely imperial pales in this territory. And so they had to engage in this kind of constant process of boundary negotiation and territorial recognition just to kind of maintain any claim. Not, a, not necessarily a vast imperial claim, but just protect the few pales that they had in this territory. So it's a 73-year history of diplomacy. Is that what you're presenting? Like Where people are negotiating the boundaries of this will be your territory, this will be my territory. There's no reservations in those days, right? There's no, there's no Indian reserves that are established, right? There's not. I mean, they almost do. In the early 1760s, they almost reserve half of Nova Scotia as indigenous territory, but it it doesn't actually happen. But it is, I think, largely a diplomatic history that focuses on not necessarily European diplomacy, although that's part of it, but it's also Europeans understanding and participating in indigenous diplomacy. That's fascinating. What can you tell us about indigenous diplomacy? How did it work? Well, some of it is sort of the idea that these relationships have to be constantly negotiated and that imperial forces are pulled into indigenous power structures as much as indigenous people are pulled into imperial power structures. So they would meet, they would have treaty negotiations. And these happened regularly from 1727 right up until 1761. And these were usually processes that were dominated by indigenous diplomacy, so required gift-giving, required long speeches, required days between meetings so that indigenous peoples, the Mi'kmaq and the Wastakwiat and the rest of the Wabanaki Confederacy could confer with others, could consult their own sort of oral archive and come back to these European negotiators and then present their case. And the benefit was that these indigenous peoples could also back up these diplomatic meetings with violence, if necessary. If they didn't think that these agreements were being maintained, they could fight as a result, and they were good at it. Now, again, just to remind us, the French still occupy Ile Royale at that point, right? Yes. Which is Cape Breton today. Yes. So the indigenous people have to negotiate with the French and with the English? Yes. And this is, I mean, they're negotiating. They're also sort of able to play one side off the other. The Mi'kmaq have sort of a deeper and longer lasting and better relationship with the French who had been in Acadia until they, at least the administrators, were forced to leave Port Royal and relocate on Ile Royale. So they were able to benefit from this French alliance, and the French were much more willing to at least officially recognize indigenous homelands because they're sort of playing a zero-sum game, and if they recognize indigenous lands, they can then claim that they can't be English. So they do have this ability to rely on the French 
And I think the French think that they're using the Mi'kmaq, but really, when they have complementary views, they work together. When their views do not overlap, the Mi'kmaq and the Wolstokwiak and the Wabanaki, they follow their own agenda. Did the English have a different attitude? The English are not terribly good at winning over the Mi'kmaq or their allies. Part of it is sort of the deeper history of English arriving to settle instead of trade. So they have this very firm idea of needing to control a lot of territory because that's how they're going to benefit from it. And the English, they're sort of sloppy in the Northeast and they don't lay the groundwork that's necessary to win over the Mi'kmaq or their allies in this sort of battle for territory. Let's talk more about this diplomacy. You talk in your book about this, this, these map wars. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, the map wars are fascinating. And this is part of the book where I try to telescope back and forth from the Northeast to Europe. The map wars really pit a variety of geographers against each other. But for the main part, it's Thomas Jeffrey's famous British map maker in geography, and Jacques-Nicolas Bélin, who is a French sort of official geographer. And they just go at each other over the Northeast. They copy each other's maps, they fudge boundaries, they move names around, they participate in these great sort of public debates that appear in newspapers and magazines. And they illustrate sort of the tension between what they think map making is, which is supposed to be objective and enlightened, but really what they're doing is using that perceived objectivity to mask their imperial bias. And they have at each other in the press, and it's a lot of fun to kind of track the way that they're doing. Well, it sounds like a throwdown. I mean, <laughs> here's my map, show me your map, and your map is all wrong, and my map is all right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they miss Jeffries, I think it's Jeffries who, who claims that French geographers prostitute their pens for the French Empire. And so they really do, they go at it, and people are reading this stuff and responding to it. So you have the public also responding to these issues and and raising concerns about maps and what they're doing to imperial claims. So what do these maps tell us about the period? I mean, they're obviously more than depictions of mountains and rivers, are they? Absolutely, yeah. They tell us about who made them. They tell us about the context of their creation as much as the territory. These maps were made by humans who made decisions who decided to include or exclude things, usually exclude indigenous presence, do simple things like refuse to use the word Acadia, always use Nova Scotia, put settlements where there may not be settlements. So these maps are imperial tools. They're also beautiful and they're attractive. And so we can try to understand the way that people would have looked at them. But it's important to get beyond, you know, what the claims are and and look at what these maps actually do. And they're making imperial arguments often. And what about the indigenous people? Did they have maps? Over the course of the 18th century, they got better at understanding sort of Western ideas of geography. The Mi'kmaq and the Wabanaki were fantastic travelers. They could sketch out river routes and navigation paths. They didn't get lost. And their ability to navigate and know their territory was impressed just about all the Europeans who encountered them. But they would use more sort of oral geography. So places had names that either helped you understand where they were or helped you know what would be there when you got there. So they definitely had a geography And they could depict it graphically, but it wasn't in the sort of scaled European vision that we think of as a map. Did any of those maps survive? We have accounts of them. 
You have to get a little bit farther west to get drawings of maps. We have descriptions of, and a lot of them are ephemeral, right? They're written on birch bark or they're carved into the ground and they're used for that moment to explain something and then right. obviously they're, they're discarded. Uh, so we, it, it's sad. We do not have a whole lot of evidence that kind of pits indigenous maps, at least in this area and time period, indigenous maps against European maps. But your book still tells us about how the indigenous people imagine their homelands. Yes. I think it's key, and that's why I try to use the term mapping as often as possible, because mapping is a process. Maps tend to be sort of a physical object, but mapping is inclusive, and it allows for us to understand the way that Indigenous peoples traveled through and recorded it and named their territories. And they would describe this in, in treaty negotiations, so we do have pieces of evidence that have to be approached carefully, but that do record the fact that these, the Mi'kmaq or the Wastakwiat, know where things are, know the history of those places, and know what the boundaries of them should be. Is it your sense that as the 1700s progress, the Indigenous people have a better idea? And what's the word I'm looking for here? I mean, do you see their perceptions change as a result of being challenged, on one hand by the French, and the other hand by, by the English, challenged to define their territory? Do you see an evolution in that or, or not? Yes, yeah. The Indigenous practice of kind of traditional adaptation is, is very obvious. And one of the remarkable moments that happens over the course of the 18th century is that the Mi'kmaq and the Wastukwiak and others, they start to realize the power of European maps and they make specific complaints. They'll say, hey, someone showed up from Europe with a map of our territory that we didn't do and they claim it is theirs now. And so they know that these European maps have influence over territorial realities. And they actually ask, they say, we want to go to France. We want to go to London. We want to be able to participate in this conversation so that we can defend our territory. So they start to realize that the rules of the game are changing a little bit as European settlement increases in the Northeast. It's remarkable. I mean, they're, they're suddenly realizing that that piece of paper has more power or has a, a tremendous amount of power compared to the actual physical occupation. Yeah, and they're very concerned about this. And they make very clear points that we did not participate or we, we never granted this land. We never ceded this land. And you think that this piece of paper means something. We know it doesn't. And that's a big cause of tension. I can imagine. Now, what about, again, let's come back to the Mi'kmaq and the Wastukwi. Yeah. There are other forms of resistance here, are there not? I mean, they're, they're resisting the pieces of paper. They're saying we want to be there. But are there other forms of resistance? Oh, yeah, there's violence. Mm -hmm. Tell us more. The British, both when they're in Port Royal and later when they establish Halifax in 1749, and especially in sort of the Abenaki Donland as, as the English try to push north from Boston, they're just constantly, they can be attacked. And the British are very aware of this. The governors complain from the earliest moment in the 18th century that their authority extends no farther than a cannonball shot from their fort. They lose settlers to indigenous attacks. There are sort of bigger conflicts that result from tensions that can't be resolved by diplomacy. So there is always violence. It's sort of a constant threat and constant presence. And are the indigenous people fighting along with the French or are they separated at that point? What's the nature of the alliance between the French and the Abenaki or the, the Mi'kmaq? The French are happy to support the Wabanaki uh, when they're attacking the English. They're not fighting for the same thing. I think that they often have complementary interests because they both want to prevent 
British expansion. But it's dangerous to just assume that the indigenous peoples are kind of pawns of an imperial game when they are fighting literally to protect their homelands, their ways of life. And if that happens to align with the French and they can secure some support from them, then that's great. But they don't stop fighting just because the French stop fighting. They are pursuing their own sort of ends. Your story ends with 1763, the Royal Proclamation. How does this affect the Abenaki, the Wustukwiuk, the Passamaquoddy, the Mi'kmaq? How will their existence change in the Maritimes as a result of the final British takeover of North America? It robs them of the French as an ally of sorts. They can no longer depend on the French to support either through gifts or supplies or other means, which had been kind of a constant over the 18th century. And it does signal a massive change in North America. And it, the Wabanaki are kind of an interesting group because they're on the wrong side of the proclamation line. So they don't benefit from the protections that the British attempt to implement in 1763 and thus have to figure out, figure out their own ways of negotiating the arrival of more English settlers in Nova Scotia that are taking up cleared Acadian lands. So it begins another stage in this process where it's now indigenous and, and English without the French element able to intervene in that competition. Again, it's worth remembering that the, the Acadians are chased out by the British in the 1750s. Yes, yeah, and that's a massive undertaking for the British, and it radically changes the geopolitics of Mi'kmaq and the Northeast homelands. Very much dark days for the indigenous people at that point, isn't it? It is. It's, it's the beginning of a different set of negotiations, and it's not over. I mean, the Mi'kmaq are able to maintain a fair amount of agency and power after 1763, but it is a moment where the British are starting to set their sights on the Northeast in ways that are going to radically change the realities of the region. Let's change gears for a second. This podcast is very much dedicated to the idea of talking about sources of the tools historians use. Can you tell us more about the difficulties of writing history in this period and on the subject that you've picked? Well, I tried. I mean, there's the very practical difficulties of Sometimes the sources that you want don't exist. I tried to balance the geographic and, and mapping element with sort of more traditional records. But it does end up, you know, you, you get led down what end up being really fun rabbit holes that don't end up the way you want them to end up. I mean, I was in Paris trying to chase down any record of this particular instance where a French commissioner was charged with clandestinely meeting an English commissioner. And all I wanted was to find an account of this. And it led me to the archives of the Paris police on the day that there had been student protests and a bomb threat. So I had to ride my bike up to these heavily armed policemen and sort of politely ask if I could get by and get into the precinct so I could try to track down this piece. Because you're chasing an 18th century map. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or an account. Or an account. I, exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, I never found it. I never found it. And it was... From the moment I first read about it, I knew, you know, this will be the opening of the book, will be this story. Yes. And I never got it. So I kind of, I feel like I've been defeated in that element. But I think it's good to leave a project not feeling like you got everything out of it. I'm sure one day you'll find that account. It'll be too late, though, which is the problem. <laughs> I'm not I'm not redoing this book, but I will, <laughs> okay. for my own sanity, hopefully I do find it. What, what sources were most helpful to you then? I found balancing the maps with sort of traditional diplomatic accounts and records of indigenous treaties and diplomacy. That was the key. The diplomatic or the, the, the accounts of indigenous treaty processes were fascinating because that did give me 
although a slightly biased account because it was recorded by either the British or the French, I was able to hear indigenous voices and hear them tell their stories about their territory in ways that allowed me to kind of reframe my thinking of what I had always thought of as either Nova Scotia or Acadia. And then I sort of realized, oh, no, this is Mi'kmaq, this is Walstokwiak, this is the Dawnland. And it was those accounts that I think really allowed me to think about not just the territory, but also the relationships that were happening in the territory differently. Was there one account that you particularly remember as illuminating? Well, there are a number of accounts. We're talking about indigenous diplomacy here. Yeah, and it's less one account, and it's more the arguments that they make. And I found that the arguments were just often indisputable. They would say things like, you know, we wouldn't come to Europe without asking you and then claim it is ours. You have come here without <laughs> asking us and claimed it is yours, and that doesn't make sense. And so there are these sort of eternally logical arguments that come out in these negotiations that you see the English try to squirm around with great difficulty, and it allows you to really understand the ways in which the indigenous peoples were resisting, both by violence and diplomacy, and then also just by logic, what the English, and to a certain extent, what the French were trying to do. It's really a fascinating account, Jeffers. I want to congratulate you on, again, writing, publishing Homelands and Empires, Indigenous Spaces, Imperial Fictions, and Competition for Territory in Northeastern North America, 1690 to 1763. Thank you very much for being a part of this discussion, Jeffers. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. This was an installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and my guest was Jeffers Lennox. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on December 8, 2017. It was produced by Sumit Dami and Hugh Backhurst. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>